2020 in The New Statesman. My guest on today's program wrote, I fear that history will judge lockdown as a monumental mistake on a truly global scale. At that time, there was surprisingly little debate over an unprecedented public health intervention. But that dialogue is starting to happen now. And my guest's recent book is one reason why. Mark Woolhouse is a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at the University of Edinburgh. He's also the author of The Year the World Went Mad, a scientific memoir. Mark Woolhouse is my guest today on Lean Out. Mark, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Really nice to have you on. Uh, Your book was a real relief to read for so many reasons, but in part because of how accessible it was to the public, how, how well written it was. It's really one of the first books I've seen kind of airing the debate on these key issues of pandemic policy. So let's start here. Take me back to January of 2020. You raised the alarm about this virus very early on. You'd been studying the emergence of new viruses for more than 20 years. What did you see in those first two months that others, particularly in government, did not see? Well, for those of us who had been studying emerging viruses for many, many years, this this was a very straightforward issue. We were about to have a pandemic. We were very confident about this. Um, there are several things that contribute to that. Uh, one of them is knowing how well it spreads. Um, and the epidemiologists use this complicated ratio. It's not that complicated, really. The, the number of cases per case. But basically, if every case is generating more than one other case, you've got an exponential process. You've got the beginning of an epidemic. You've got a potential pandemic. And it was. And we could see that it was. We, we knew from the very early data from China that that was happening. Uh, and then you also have a couple of other numbers that tell you how fast the epidemic is moving and also how severe it is. This was a very difficult number to actually get early data on, was how many of the people who were getting infected were not only getting sick, but sick enough to put them in hospital. And for some of them, some of them actually died, of course. Uh, so we had not very good data on that, but certainly the data we had was absolutely enough to be calling the alarm at that very early stage in mid-January. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to focus quite a bit on lockdowns today. So you point out in the book that you won't find the word lockdown in a textbook on public health published before 2020. And Matt Ridley, writing in the forward to your book, points to the Italian lockdown as a turning point, with authorities realizing that it was a measure that could be palatable outside of China. Why do you think so many governments seized on lockdowns? Well, this is quite a thought, isn't it? We had, even before the pandemic, any number of plans from governments, from agencies, from international bodies of how we would deal with the next pandemic. And nobody, absolutely nobody in those plans had put lockdown. It wasn't there. So we made this up. We made this up from scratch. We, we had this imminent pandemic. And clearly, the Chinese authorities, even if they didn't say so directly, 
understood the seriousness of the situation from very early on, because if you remember, they locked down the entire city of Wuhan. That's a huge city, mm. so well over 10 million population. They locked it down in the late January. So they knew how serious this was, and they knew what sort of measures would have to be taken to deal with it. But they hadn't planned to do it. We hadn't planned to do it. The World Health Organization didn't have any plans to do it. But it was the first thing that we actually did. And it seemed to have an effect. It did actually eliminate the infection from Wuhan. And that encouraged, particularly the World Health Organization, to endorse this brand new, newly invented intervention as the way that we should be dealing with COVID-19. And that's not surprisingly pretty much every government in the world, not quite every government, but most of them latched onto it. Mm-hmm. And you you talk about the period before lockdowns and, and what could have been done uh, in that lead up, that there wasn't actually much done in the very beginning. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Hmm. Well, some very high level uh, analyses, uh, uh, retrospective analyses of what went right and wrong in those early stages have called February 2020 as the lost month the month where really nothing happened. So the alarm had been called in January, and the World Health Organization had somewhat belatedly, in my view, but declared that this was a public health emergency of international concern. That's their phrase for a a worrying outbreak. It's not a full pandemic. They didn't declare that until early March. Mm -hmm. So and in between that gap, we had this, what was being described as a localized public health emergency, growing into a pandemic, largely unseen, spreading around the world into northern Italy, where you mentioned earlier, but many other European countries too, and America very definitely as well at the same time, spreading all around the world during that month of February, largely unseen until by March. For most countries, it was too late. The infection was well established in their populations. It was starting to spread locally. It was starting to take off in individual countries. And there we were. We had a pandemic. Um, nothing, nothing much happened in February when, in fact, it could have done. Uh, if we'd accepted what was coming, we could have done a lot more to prepare ourselves, versus, both in terms of the actual uh, implementations we would need, thing, you know, things like the basic things like masks for healthcare workers, uh, tests and so on, but also, of course, our planning. We could have at that stage planned not only that this is going to be a big event, But we might have realized, given what was happening in Wuhan, that if we weren't careful, we were going to end up in lockdown. And I always saw those as twin hazards. I mean, clearly, you don't want a huge pandemic. I mean, without question, you don't want that. But also, really, do we want to go into lockdown? Could we not have used February to identify a better strategy, a better way of dealing with it? But we didn't do that. And when the pandemic finally became so obvious that even the World Health Organization had to admit we were having one, lockdown became the preferred tool of choice. It was implemented in many states in America, most of the countries in Western Europe, uh, and and a lot around the world. Mm -hmm. Certainly here. You pointed out in the New Statesman uh, in July of 2020 that lockdowns are supposed to be a temporary measure. They're not supposed to be a sustainable public health intervention. But many jurisdictions did not seem to have a kind of speedy exit strategy. Our lockdowns in Ontario, for instance, where I am in Toronto, lasted months. 
I was working in mainstream media during these lockdowns, I saw almost no public debate about the harms versus the benefits. You were a government advisor during the crisis. Was there an assessment of the potential harms of lockdowns on the economy, mental health, education, societal well-being, functioning of healthcare systems? No, there wasn't. And I really hope this is an issue that the inquiries were having a, a big national inquiry into our pandemic response here in the UK uh, has begun already. Uh, and I really hope that inquiry and any that happened in America or Canada or anywhere else really emphasize this point. We had these very detailed projections. They weren't always right, but we had them about how bad the, the epidemic would be in terms of its public health impact. We had all those and they kept coming all the way through the pandemic. Very, very detailed analyses of what the public health agencies and the national health systems could expect. But we had nothing equivalent for the harms that we might anticipate to the economy. And those aren't, by the way, just the harms done to lockdown. I mean, the pandemic itself, of course, has huge impact on the economy. Even if you don't try and fight it with lockdowns, it has an impact. So we didn't have any proper assessment of that. Nothing on the harms to education that would come from closing schools from a prolonged period of time. Nothing on the uh, mental health impacts of something like lockdown, severe social distancing. No, no analysis of that. Uh, interestingly, nothing on the impact of the reduced access to healthcare. So I don't know how it was in Canada, but here in the UK, we were effectively told in those early months of the pandemic, stay away from the health service if you possibly can. They're concentrating on COVID. And the result of that was that thousands of more deaths than usual occurred during that period in people's homes. And quite clearly, those were very ill people who should have gone to hospital. And they didn't. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't have any analysis of what sort of impact those would have. Uh, and uh, all the way through, this bias remained that we were looking at the public health harms caused by the virus, but not all that long list of harms caused by lockdown. So it was very, very difficult for anyone to come to a well-informed, evidence-based, rational decision about the right balance of how strict our response should be versus the very obvious harms that would be caused by the virus. How could we find that balance when we hadn't done the work? We, we mm -hmm. hadn't, we'd only looked at one side of the equation. Mm. Another thing that really stood out from from the book for me is in in October of 2020, you co-wrote a report with your colleague, Chris Robertson, and um, I want to ask you a little bit about its findings. In Scotland, how many deaths were caused by infections acquired after lockdowns were imposed? Most of them. So probably somewhere of the order of half to three quarters of the people who died during the first wave in Scotland, which killed thousands of people, they got their infections during lockdown. As you say, it wasn't, wasn't before the lockdown was implemented, even allowing for the lag before people get ill enough to die. We, we, we allowed for all that. And it wasn't after, once we started release. It, it was during. Now, what that says to me is, is whether or not you're for or against lockdown as a, an appropriate intervention to deal with this sort of thing. And as you said, I'm definitely not, but there are people in, in, who still defend it even to today. But it doesn't matter whether you're for or against it. It tells you that just having the lockdown by itself wasn't enough. Because that's most of the people who, who died got their infections during lockdown. 
And the key point is, of course, even by that early stage, we knew who these people were. It wasn't everybody. It wasn't that this virus was equally dangerous to every member of society. It absolutely wasn't. We knew from very early on that elderly people, so a 75-year-old or older, was 10,000 times more likely to die from an infection with this virus as a school-aged child. 10,000 times. I mean, that's an absolutely extraordinary difference. And what that tells you, surely, is whatever else you do, this is something that is very dangerous to over 75s. And once we established that there were other comorbidities, things like diabetes, obesity, all sorts of immunocompromising conditions as well, we have a long list of them. Now, I think those needed an awful lot more attention than they got. And there's a couple of reasons why they didn't get it. But one of them is because somewhere along the line, we got the message that lockdown was the way to deal with this. And mm -hmm. it simply wasn't enough to protect the people who are most vulnerable to this virus. I mean, those are just astonishing numbers. And and yet, for very many, many months in the media when I was working, these, these numbers were just not at the forefront. This understanding was not in the public. I want to talk about shielding in a moment. But first, let's just touch on school closures. It's a hugely contentious issue now, but at the time, also not a lot of debate. You write in the book that there was never any compelling evidence that school closures would have much public health benefit, but we did it anyway. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, the reason we did it is fairly easy to understand, at least in the UK context. So our preparedness planning for the next pandemic was based very much around pandemic influenza. And influenza is another kind of respiratory infection, obviously, and that historically has spread very well in schools. So if you remember the swine flu pandemic back in 2009, 2010, that was largely driven by schools. The, the, the children were getting infected, spreading the virus among themselves, passing it on to their teachers and the parents. They, they were driving the epidemic. Now, we knew from very early on that COVID-19 was very closely related to a different respiratory infection, the SARS coronavirus, which, of course, did hit Canada. You had quite a significant outbreak uh, there in Canada. And, and, and SARS was a real threat. The the case fatality rate was far higher than it was for COVID-19. So it was a very dangerous virus, but they were very closely related. SARS didn't really affect children. I mean, during that SARS whole worldwide SARS epidemic, the, the children were not particularly affected. There was never any evidence they were really contributing much to transmission. And it turned out, perhaps unsurprisingly, given how closely COVID-19 is related to SARS, that that was true of that virus too. Uh, and so children were not driving this pandemic. But we assumed that they were because we were thinking of flu. And they weren't. And there was never any evidence they were because they weren't. Uh, there was never any evidence that they were a particular danger from this virus because they weren't. Healthy children are almost no danger from this virus. That There have been some, some very ill and uh, indeed fatally infected children, but they've always been, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, children that were already very, very poorly, which is obviously extremely sad. But the epidemiology remains true, that it's it's not really a virus that's spread among children or is a threat uh, to healthy children. Uh, and yet we close schools. And the irony is, back in the swine flu pandemic in 2009, 2010, which was a threat to children and killed many more than, than uh, COVID-19 did, we did keep schools open. 
it it doesn't it doesn't make sense it really doesn't make sense it's such a it's a strange thing to have to think through um but of course so important as we as we begin to come out of this all now and and to sort of take stock um one of the other things that i was kind of struck by reading the book you you argue in the book that there was this dominant thinking no death from a coronavirus is acceptable which made it impossible to tackle pandemic policy in a rational manner. And indeed, the reaction to lockdown criticism was a little on the hysterical side, accusing people of not taking the virus seriously, claiming skeptics just wanted to let the virus rip. You advocated for shielding of the vulnerable and the elderly. Uh, Walk us through what shielding looks like. Well, there's quite a lot in that question. So can I just reinforce one of the introductory points you made, uh, which was about the difficulty of having a debate about the merits or otherwise of lockdown at the time in a, a very nice review of The Year the World Went Mad in one of the leading newspapers in the UK, that their science editor Tom Whipple wrote, it wasn't possible to have the debate at the time because, his quotes, supporting lockdown had become a test of virtue. Mm-hmm. So if you if you didn't support lockdown, you were in some sense a bad person. And I, I certainly got elements of this, this myself. Um, it, you know, I, I devoted my entire time during this pandemic to try and minimize the loss of life and the loss of the uh, reduce the collateral damage. And I would never, ever recommend anything that I thought meant that more people would die. Good grief. Far too many people died as it was. So there was just absolutely no question of that. But you're quite right. The debate took that sort of flavor. Um, So we talked earlier about the importance of protecting the vulnerable. We didn't do it very well by lockdown, and we understand now why we didn't. It's actually very obvious. Every, anyone could have worked this out in the, in the first place. And the reason is that the people who are most vulnerable to this virus, as we've already said, are elderly, but they're also frail. They're often ill with other conditions. Uh, they're not well. And these are people who cannot isolate themselves, which is what most of us were asked to do, stay in our homes. They need to interact with the healthcare system regularly. Uh, They need to interact with social care. They need to interact with informal care. It's simply not possible uh, for for them to isolate themselves. And as I say in my book, my own mother was in this position. Uh, She she had uh, regular daily carers that had to come in to look after her. there There was no way around this. So those people could not isolate themselves in the way that we were were all asked to. And and the subsequent analysis has shown that actually a lot of them, that's the route they got their infection, through their essential carers. So how do we stop this? Well, it's it's actually rather obvious, isn't it? If, If the carers are the ones that inadvertently, of course, are transmitting infection to these very vulnerable individuals, we need to protect the carers. Uh, and we do all sorts of things to make sure that they're not infected. But one thing we can make sure to, we can do easily to break the link is test the carers, test them regularly. Even with what we started with, those rather cumbersome PCR tests that we all had to go to special places to get tested and all this sort of thing before we could test ourselves in our own homes, which is much better. Uh, but even with the PCR test, we could have pointed our resources, directed our resources to testing the people who were caring for what we already knew was the most vulnerable, much the most vulnerable fraction of the community. And and in addition to that, we didn't go to the effort of saying, well, to the carers, well, here are some proper medical grade masks that you can have for free. 
here is your advice. This is how you keep the people you're caring for safe. How you pe- keep the people like my mother safe. This is how you do it. Now, a lot of the care companies did this for themselves, but there wasn't a coordinated national effort to say that these are the sort of people that we really need to concentrate on concentrate on in order to protect the vulnerable. We, we, we never really had a joined up strategy of that kind uh, that put the focus where I think it should have been on, on protecting those that were most likely to suffer very badly from this virus. Mm-hmm. And what are the key differences between this strategy that you're proposing and the Great Barrington Declaration? So you used the phrase, I think, uh, let it rip earlier on, which was became very much associated with the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, so they took the argument I've just made, uh, and one of the arguments I haven't just made, so I'll, let me make it. So if, if, as in the UK, your strategy, your, your objective of your strategy is to stop the NHS, our National Health Service, being overwhelmed and to minimise the number of deaths, you know, I, I think it's fairly obvious that protecting the vulnerable better achieves that. But it also then raises the possibility that if you want, you could also relax restrictions somewhat. And, and, and we went into some detail about the balance between doing those two, two things and still keeping government policy objectives of not letting the health system be overwhelmed, keeping within those. So it does allow you some scope to relax restrictions. However, when we proposed this, and it, it was considered very seriously within the highest levels of government in the UK. And in fact, it even got to, to the prime minister's office. So, so you know, it was, it was on the table. But when we proposed this, we were very clear that you'd still need some restrictions. You couldn't let it rip because then there would simply be too much virus around and we couldn't cope with it. The Great Barrington Declaration actually did go the whole way. They said, no, no, no. If you protect the vulnerable enough, you could let this virus spread. Well, I, I think that was a very hard strategy to defend in terms of the public health burden. I think the public health burden would still have been overwhelming had we done that. But more fundamentally, the whole strategy was based on the idea that if you did that, you would rapidly build up in the rest of the population herd immunity. Uh, so that means that people who had been exposed to the virus basically don't get it again. And eventually the virus runs out of people to infect and the epidemic is over. And they were hoping that that could be achieved quite quickly within months. So it wasn't a completely off-the-wall proposal. But the doubt I had at the time is, well, hang on a minute. We don't know that herd immunity, the level of protection you get once you've been infected, is actually that good. And if it isn't really solid, then this is not going to work. We're not going to get herd immunity. And of course, sadly, it turns out that's true. As we've all seen, I think most of us by now have had COVID not once, but multiple times. You can get reinfected and the new variants come along and they they can infect people who had already been infected multiple times. And you can even get infected when you've been vaccinated. So getting to this herd immunity threshold is actually really, really hard. So Great Barrington would not have worked for that reason alone. So, so I was not in favor of Great Barrington, but I was in favor of going a little way down the road towards it in a way that I felt got the optimum balance between saving people's lives, which is a priority, but also saving the society from the economic, the educational, the harms to businesses, livelihoods, and so on that lockdown was causing. And I thought that middle ground would be the right place to target our response. But as you were sort of hinting at earlier, 
the whole debate got completely polarized. It was either or. You can have Great Barrington or the strictest possible lockdown. And those are the two options that got left on the table. And my very middle of the road, reasonable, balanced arguments got completely brushed aside in, in a, a rather ferocious debate between those two extremes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we all we all lost out because that happened. Mm-hmm. And what do you see as the media's role in this? I mean, I'm thinking in particular about uh, the reporting on modeling and how sometimes these drastic worst case scenarios were reported as predictions. But in your view, what were the key mistakes the media made? Well, that was one of them. But I mean, it was a very predictable one. Uh, media always focuses on worst case scenarios when you when you publish it. So I think I think the lesson is to us scientists to be very careful about how you communicate what you think the worst case is in the sure and certain knowledge that that's the one that the media will will pick up on respond to us. I think we have to be an awful lot more careful about we do that how we do that. Um, but the media did not, I think, present a very balanced picture, particularly of where the risks lay. So one of my uh, irritations with uh, during during that first lockdown back in there was watching the BBC News pretty much every night uh, in our house and regularly seeing reports of people who have died from COVID-19, which was obviously, you know, the individual cases are all very sad and, and, and very regrettable. But if you looked at the demography of those cases, you would never, ever guess that this was a virus where, as I said earlier, over 75s were 10,000 times more likely to die than a healthy school-aged child. You wouldn't get that impression at all. So many of the cases they showed were actually healthy adults. Well, the, the, the cases were true, but these were very rare events. During the whole epidemic, probably in the UK, just a few hundred where healthy under 50s died without any, any risk factors. This didn't happen very often. The vast number of deaths was in other demographic categories, but that's not what was shown. So everybody got the impression that we were all at risk. And this was actually reinforced actively by the advisory committees and the government. So one of the advisory committees, not one I sat on, pointed out early on uh, in, in the course of the epidemic that there were, might be some concerns with people complying with lockdown if those people did not think they were at risk from this virus, by which they mean most of us, incidentally, if we didn't think we were at risk. So their advice to government was hard-hitting, emotional messaging to make sure that these people are as concerned as we think they should be. And that got translated by government, hardly surprisingly, into this idea that we're all at risk. The virus does not discriminate. And there were senior ministers saying this all over the place. And it simply wasn't true. And we know it wasn't true. But not surprisingly, by that stage, everybody thought they were all at risk not, if not equally, certainly at significant risk. And, and, and I've spoken to colleagues since, and they've asked their students in, in medical courses and statistics courses how much individual risk they thought they were at during the pandemic. And one of my colleagues said when he did that, they were roughly 100 times too high. They overestimated their own risk by two orders of magnitude because that's what they'd been told. That's what they'd been shown on the media screens. And this, I, I, I really deeply concerned about this. I think, I think myself that the vast majority of the public can make informed and sensible decisions about managing the risk to themselves and 
the risk to people around them, like like my mother, the, the, the vulnerable people, I think they can manage those risks if they know what they are and understand them. All the polls said they were willing to do so. You know, everybody said that they, they were willing to change their own lives in order to protect not only themselves, but the people around them. So, so this is a very clear messaging. And yet we didn't give them the facts. We just let these stories permeate, these, these, these myths permeate that we were all at risk, the virus does not discriminate. And as a result, many people spent a lot of time living in fear that they didn't need to have. Mm. I mean, it's very troubling and it does have implications going forward. And, and that's where I'd like to close today. At the end of your book, you talk about some of the key lessons that we need to take away from our pandemic response. Walk me through the three cardinal errors that you outline that, that you'd like us all to think about going forward. <laughs> if I can remember them. Uh, <laughs> one was optimism bias. So uh, the, the word in the UK political circles from our ex-Prime Minister Boris Johnson is boosterism. It won't be that bad. Scientists like me back in January were saying how bad they were, it, this was going to be. And I'm afraid we were right, sadly, uh, but they thought it wouldn't be that bad. Uh, so they didn't act. The other key thing was they, they treated this as if it was just a public health problem, whereas we've discussed at some length, it certainly wasn't just a public health problem. And the other thing that particularly bothers me is they thought this was a temporary problem. And one of the good arguments, if you like, of going into lockdown in principle uh, back in uh, March 2020 in the UK, and I suppose it was much the same in Canada, was that if we just knuckled down for a few weeks and gritted our teeth and got through this very inconvenient period of our lives, the problem would be solved. But that was never true. That was never going to be true. We knew for me well before we went into lockdown that this virus is going to be with us indefinitely. That this, I, I said publicly, this is going to go on for at least two years. So it wasn't going to go away. So, so we were, we went into lockdown somewhat under false pretenses. I would, if I thought lockdown would have ended the, the whole thing in six weeks, I would have supported it wholeheartedly. I would have been cheering from the rooftops for, for lockdown. But I knew it wasn't going to be like that. I absolutely knew. So our response had to be sustainable, had to be proportionate, had to be effective. And actually, lockdown turned out to be none of those things. So not, in my view, a good idea. And I really hope we don't go that route again in the future. Mm. And you have referenced how politicized science became during the pandemic. How do we come out of that? Take the politicians out of it as much as you possibly can. Very crude analogy, but I think it'll do for the time being, is if we're in the unfortunate situation of fighting a war, and of course we have a war going on in Europe at the moment, the politicians set the strategy, the objectives, they set the budget, and then they let the military commanders get on with it. They don't intervene every five minutes as ours were. And I don't know if you had this in Canada. Uh, we, we had a rule that you were only allowed in a pub if you were also having a substantial meal. Mm. We had cabinet office ministers opining on whether a Scotch egg was a substantial meal or not. We had senior ministers in Scotland discussing how many people could queue outside takeaways. This is not what I want my leaders to be doing in the time of a national emergency. I want them to be focused on the big picture, 
the strategy that gets us out of this pandemic, which is a very significant threat to a large number of people, so the public health problem is immense, and gets us out of lockdown, which is causing an immense problem to everyone else. And they're thinking about whether a scotch egg is a substantial meal or not. <laughs> no, get, get the politicians out of these sort of public health decisions. Let them decide the strategy and the budgets, and we can make sensible decisions on their behalf. Mm. Well, I, I think this is such an important book. I learned so much reading it. And Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss it today. You're very welcome. It was lovely talking to you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Dot com.